Amen. Well, good morning. Well, that was unique, wasn't it? When was the last time you sang a cappella in church? Oh, by God's sovereign planning, as we said, Brady's at the G3 conference, and Cam is out, Diana is out, and Caroline is recovering. So we're very thankful to Grant for leading us with his tenor voice, his lovely tenor voice. Churches for many centuries have subsisted on what we just enjoyed. We're lifting our voices in worship. It is a pleasing sound to God's ears, there is no doubt. Well, what a joy it was as well last week to celebrate the joy of baptism. Such a wonderful testimony from such an amazing young lady to publicly identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, raised to new life in him. What a blessing. If being faithful to the call and command of baptism is something that you wish to pursue, if you're a lover of Christ, you're born again, but have yet for any reason to pursue baptism, please come chat with myself or one of our leaders. We would love to walk with you in that. Well, those that have known me for any amount of time know that I love to hike, loving to climb whenever I have the opportunity. And this week I was blessed to be able to hike up Mount Muskoko in the Rockies with my sister and her husband who live out in Colorado. We spent our time hiking in great fellowship and speaking about the deep things of God, invigorated by the mountains that leave this lowlander here dwelling, gasping for air. And yet this climb was more special than any other I've had, and that's why I share it with my church family. In fact, as we will see, it was more valuable than all the worth in all the world. As we approached the summit of the mountain, my lungs burning from the altitude, I witnessed a young man sitting atop a rock, looking out over the majestic Rockies. My heart was immediately drawn to him, but I took a moment to allow my thoughts to settle and to replenish some oxygen stores in my blood. And I greeted this man with a smile, and I asked him where he was from. And we had some small talk and some pleasantries, and his name was Javier. He was from Cuba. Well, that was a great connector. I shared with them by chance I would be in Havana four times next month. What are the odds? So we stood there for a moment, looking out over the incredible view. I'm often not one to mince words, so I asked him what he thought about a god who allows us to enjoy something like this. That's about as wide open as you can make it, isn't it? That train could go anywhere. And Javier didn't say much to that, so I pressed a bit further. I asked him if he thought we deserved such a magnificent thing. He didn't know how to answer that either. I asked if he thought God allowing us to enjoy his beautiful creation like this, was it a grace or was it a mercy? He looked inquisitively, and seeing his question, I shared with Javier that grace was receiving something that we don't deserve. Mercy was not receiving something that we do deserve, and that us being here today was both. I said, tell me about your family. He said he had a brother and a mother. I asked, where's your father? And like an egg cracking open, Javier immediately began to cry not just sniffles, but began to weep. His father had just died. Sudden heart attack, no notice. And through the sobs, he shared with this complete stranger on the top of this mountain what his life had looked like up until now. And after he was able to share and he had wiped his eyes, Javier kind of collected himself and he said with confidence, but I'm not that religious and 
I know that the Bible was written by men, that I have faith in mankind and faith in the goodness of those around him. But what an interesting thought. And curious by this, I asked if he thought mankind was generally good or were they evil. Of course, he said good. I said, what about you? And with, with very great genuineness, he said, yes, I am very good as well. Of course, unwittingly, Javier in this moment was affirming Scripture. Proverbs 20, verse 6 tells us that every man will declare his own goodness. Like the rich young ruler who ran to Jesus asking how he must be saved, he declared how good he had been from his youth. And what did Jesus do? Well, he did what you and I are to do. Jesus opened the law to his heart and to his conscience. Paul tells us that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Yes, the tablet of the law was written on stone, but this was the most reflective stone in all of history. So reflective that scripture calls it a mirror. A mirror of honesty that shows us who we really are. For every believer, the law is our most able auxiliary. It's the greatest tool in our toolbox for reaching the lost. It leaves those that it encounters stripped naked and helpless before it. That's the work of the law. And so great is it that that's what Jesus used. Jesus opened the law to the rich young ruler. In self-righteousness, the ruler had claimed that he kept all these commandments from his youth. And Jesus pushed past this and he went right for his idolatry allowing the law to show the ruler his true state. And we know that the ruler went away sad. And Jesus simply left that ruler with the law because of his self-righteousness. There was no good news that day shared by Jesus. If you pull out the fire of the law on someone's conscience too early, before it's ready, you may waste the pearl of the gospel. Javier had proclaimed his own goodness with all sincerity of heart, just like the rich young ruler. And thus we brought the law to bear upon Javier's heart. And slowly he realized that if there was a God, he had broken his laws. And he was left with the question, if God is a good judge, if he's holy, if he's just, what should he do with me? If he's an upright judge, if he's not a corrupt one that can be bought off or bribed with other good works or, or stories about a hard life and a victim status, what do I deserve? Javier was looking down by now and he had no answer to that. The law was doing its work. Psalm 19 verse 7 declares that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And instead of rising up in self-righteousness or, or justification or pride, the law had now penetrated the topsoil for the seed of the gospel to be planted. The tiller had done its work. This was a heart that was prepared to receive the good news, the euangelion, who's prepared for the gospel. So there on that mountaintop, good news came to Javier, that a substitute had been made on our behalf. Christ died the death we deserve to die. Our sin was put upon him, and God poured out his wrath on his son as if he were us. And because of Christ, divine justice had been satisfied. Our debt that had been owed was canceled. Our fine has been paid through Christ and his sacrifice. 
And if he will come in repentance and faith, if he will humble ourselves, he'll turn none away. To flee to the Savior for rescue. Javier understood. My sister, her husband, and I, we gathered around Javier in that rarefied air, and we asked if we could pray with him. We laid our hands on him to let him know that we loved him and we cared about him even though we had just met. You know, we thought when we closed in prayer that we would say our goodbyes, we'd give our encouragements and head back down the mountain. To our surprise, as we got up to leave, Javier got right up with us and proceeded to hike the entire way down with us, talking the whole way. God had begun such a precious work. And we took a picture at the bottom of that mountain with Javier. I think we might have that picture. He's the young man in the middle. Now you can put a face to the story as you remember him in your prayers. Who can put a price on the value of just one soul, one to Christ? Spurgeon famously said, quote, Have we not yet sufficiently learned the value of an immortal soul if we do not feel that we would be willing to live, say, 70 years to be the means of saving one soul? and be willing to compass the whole globe and preach in every city and every town and every village if we might only be rewarded at the last with just one convert, close quote. Each one of you have your Javier. They're out there. Your neighbor, your family member, your co-worker, don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. If we are ashamed of the gospel, beloved, it is a likely evidence that we have yet to believe it ourselves. The harvest is white. So go forth into the communities that God has placed you in. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, last week we waded into the incredible linchpin of Scripture, did we not? Having built up with great anticipation the beauty and the betrayal of the upper room, the sovereign planning and foreknowledge of God in such an event... The betrayal of Judas long foretold in Scripture. And of course, the beauty of Jesus' response. And the the precious intimacy of his teaching and praying in that very upper room. Until we arrived last week at the moment. The moment in time where the last Passover became the first communion. From the celebration of a former exodus to a far greater exodus. We witnessed in reality the inauguration of the New Testament, or specifically, the New Covenant. As Jesus broke the bread and gave and drank the third of the four cups of wine, the cup of redemption, and he gave it. With that, the old covenant of rituals and sacrifices, of ceremonies and rules were over. That beautiful temple that was so very close to the home where this took place was now nothing but a building. We now have a temple not made with hands, Paul tells us. No more Passover lambs by the thousands were needed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has arrived to have his blood spilled once, casting our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. This old covenant requiring the daily sacrifice of animals, this old conditional covenant that had no power to save, no power to reconcile, only having the power to condemn, only the power to show our inability and our need is over. And there to proclaim and declare with a bullhorn that we must have a substitute 
the blood of these millions of sacrifices that would have occurred over the life of the Old Covenant could never satisfy Old Covenant divine justice. Not through the blood of lambs could God be both just and the justifier. A new covenant must be inaugurated. One that can save. God told Jeremiah of this coming day, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day where I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. As Gentiles, gloriously grafted in, he's talking about you. They're talking about you. Christ was born under the law. He was our law-keeping substitute. He was perfect in life, and he was perfect in death. He was the perfect substitute slain for us. And not as plan B, but from the foundation of the world. And in a moment of time, in that upper room, the author of the new covenant announces its arrival and its reality how God commanded and how he communicated, how God would reconcile and redeem mankind would be forever changed. We now have a covenant of life, one that forgets our sin. Where the old covenant was a covered glory, we now have the glory uncovered. It's uncovered, revealed in majesty. The exodus of the Israelites from Egypt was but a foretaste of the exodus that's to come. We are partakers of that greater exodus. All who are in Christ. And thus in establishing this ordinance of his church, the Lord's Supper, we do this not only in remembrance of him, looking back, but we saw that Jesus' institution of the new covenant in taking the bread and the wine was looking forward as well. It was eschatological. Do this, Jesus says what? Until I come looking forward with expectation and anticipation of his return. When the kingdom of God will be consummated and we will sit with Christ once again at the marriage supper of the Lamb and the Passover, as it were, will be reinstituted, not celebrating the escape from Egypt, but now we will look back to the cross that you and I have been passed over once again. The death that we deserve to die passed us over. And it fell upon our Savior, who we will worship forevermore. And then and only then, Jesus will drink that fourth cup of the Passover meal, the cup of consummation. But not until that time. When we partake of the table, we look back. Yes, we remember, we reflect, and we examine. But we also look forward to consummation. When Jesus will drink of the vine once again. And of course, our text ended beautifully last week. If you'll recall, it read after singing a hymn, probably sounded much like ours this morning, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
And today it's on that short walk toward the Mount of Olives where we find ourselves. Having left the upper room where they would have departed out of the eastern gate, and upon exiting that gate, which is still there today in location, and there between the eastern gate and the Mount of Olives is the Kidron Valley. Now that sounds pretty expansive, but it's really not actually. If you go there today, erosion has made that valley much deeper than it was in Jesus' time. It's, it was much more of a, a gentle sloping valley back then. But today it's still passable on foot out of the eastern gate. If you can navigate it past all the roads and the buses, it can be crossed in about 10 to 15 minutes to give you some context. As Jesus left and his disciples left out into the night, there would have been a few glows from the various houses that were still celebrating Passover and preparing for the next day. Light would have emanated from behind the walls of Jerusalem, giving them some light as they crossed the valley, and perhaps even light from their torches as well, would allow them to notice the flowing stream that was meandering through the valley from the winter rains that were still falling. And if they had enough light to see in those wee early hours, this stream would have looked very different from any you and I have ever seen. This stream would have been thick with blood. The flow from the temple used this same stream, causing it to run red with the blood of lambs that had been crucified by the tens of thousands that day. And how deep it was, we don't know whether or not it was passable without getting that mingled blood on your sandals or your tassels, I don't know. But Jesus knew, and Jesus saw. And even now, as his heart begins to grow heavy, as Gethsemane approaches, he makes a crushing prediction there in the darkness. But as we will see, amidst this devastating declaration by Jesus, the beauty is far greater. Their weakness is eclipsed by glory. So with that, beloved, let us look to our text this morning. Mark 14, 27 through 31. Mark 14, 27 through 31. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, that today, this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we approach this magnificently difficult text, Lord, that we will see it eclipsed by glory. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would allow us to see this text as it was written. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would allow the arrow to find its mark this morning, knowing every need that has come to us you know. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would abide to the preaching of your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, one of the downsides of the weather starting to cool and the leaves starting to change is the advent of flu season. 
When thinking about the flu, there's one symptom that seems to eclipse them all. Weakness. You are weak. And to look at our diminished self that's lying there in the bed, we would look a sad mess, wouldn't we? Weak and sick. But in that moment, as you lie there in their weakness, in your weakness, that's not the whole story, is it? If we were to put your blood, if we were to take your cells and put them under a microscope, we would see something incredible. Amidst your weakness, there is a flurry of activity that's happening in your body. White blood cells are moving and attacking the virus. Neutrophils are attacking bacteria. Lymphocytes are defending and targeting foreign invaders. You've got B cells that are creating antibodies to prevent further infections. All kinds of things are happening in your body. All our eyes can see at this moment is a weakened person, sick and lying in bed. But look closer. Grab a microscope and a whole different world comes into view. Our weakness, however prevalent, even though it's all we can naturally see, is not the real story, is it? Something else, something far greater and far more beautiful is eclipsing our sickness. And so it is today. By the natural reading of our eyes and our text, we see nothing but tragedy and betrayal. We see nothing but incredible weakness in the disciples. And that is true. They will all run. They will all abandon him. They will all succumb to weakness. But look closer. There's more to the story. Grab your microscopes. Let's see what comes into view. Let us see the glory that is eclipsing the weakness. Now looking to our first verse, verse 27. Verse 27. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Now pause there. Well, we've walked in on the patient, opening verse, and yikes, <laughs> it looks bad. You're weak. You're all going to flee. You're going to abandon me. Your courage is going to fail you. You will all fall away. Where's the beauty in that? Grab your microscope. In the first two words out of Jesus' mouth, he utterly eclipses the weakness of the disciples. What does he say? You will. Future tense, you will. Here is what is going to happen. What light, what glory here is radiating over their weakness? It is the omniscience of God. Omniscience means all-knowing. In two words, Jesus says, I know the future. I know the end from the beginning because I'm God. And what's bigger in this text, beloved? What's bigger? The, dis the temporary weakness of the disciples? Or the omniscience, the complete expression of an all-knowing God? A God who knows what you're going to do before you do it. That is the prerogative of the divine. Yes, the patient is sick. They are weak with a sickness, but zoom in and glory explodes. These two words reveal I am God in the human flesh. I possess all knowledge. I know every hair on your head. I know you're waking up. I know you're lying down. I'm intimately acquainted with all your ways. All of those truths beautifully reflected in just two words. You will. 
You will. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what you're going to do. Yes, it's a dire prediction. It's utterly true. They are weak. But the beauty's only begun to shine. The eclipse is only starting to move. Back to our text. What other glory awaits us in the, the midst of the disciples' weakness? Last part of verse 27. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Why will you all fall away? Because it is written. Boy, we could just drop anchor right there and never leave, couldn't we, beloved? Jesus makes a declaration concerning the authority of Scripture. Why will this happen? Because it is written. How sure is the book we hold in our hands? It's as sure as the divinity of Christ. It's as sure as the omniscience of Christ. If it is written, it is done. How tenacious are we when we come to his word? Do we speak about scripture with the same surety that Christ does? Are we a bulldog with a bone when it comes to the promises and the declarations of scripture? Why do I live this way? Because it is written. Why do I believe this way? Because it is written. Why can I resist temptation? Because it is written. And why can I pursue joy and pain? And why can I pursue strength and weakness? Because it is written. Our decisions in life, our feelings in life are all subject to that which is written. If you're a Christian, you're a person of the book. You're a person of the book. Baptists have always been called in history people of the book. You know what? I'll take that title. You know why? Because it is written. Because it is written. The glory goes on back to our text. I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Now, wait, that sounds terrible. That sounds terrible. The sheep getting struck down? The sheep scattering, the shepherd getting struck down, the sheep scattering. Where is the beauty in that? It all looks like weakness and failure. Grab your microscope. What's really going on? There's two beautiful rays of sunshine here. Jesus is quoting the prophet Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7. Jesus is saying, that's me. This is talking about me. The entire Old Testament, the Old Covenant in one fashion or another is pointing to me. You know, when some read that psalm or, or that prophecy that seems to have messianic overtones, but they say, boy, you know, that, that could mean anything. That, that seems kind of vague. Jesus is saying, no, that's me. By quoting the Old Testament, applying it to himself, Jesus is declaring the perfect continuity of Scripture and the absolute plan of God before the foundation of the world. And secondly, if we're to see the beauty in this weakness, the glory of the shepherd being struck and the sheep being scattered, we must look to this passage in Zechariah. I'll read it for you. No need to turn there, beloved. Zechariah 13, verse 7. Listen, God is speaking in this passage. Awake, O sword, against my, capital M, shepherd, capital S, 
And against the man, my associate, again, capital M, capital A, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Did you catch that, saints? Whose sword is striking the shepherd? Whose blow is scattering the sheep? It's God's. It's God's. Can we pause there for a moment and consider the overwhelming implications of that? If you are God's own, if you are a disciple in Christ, the hard things in life, the tragedies in life, the pain and the suffering in our life take on an entirely different meaning. From whose hand does it come? Or from whose hand is it allowed? In the case of people like Job. It is God. Spurgeon famously said, quote, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. If you're a Christian, those are God's waves. Sent or allowed, full stop. It is the sword of God that will strike the shepherd and scatter the sheep. And for some odd reason, Satan as a, as a figurehead tends to to feature prominently in the final days and hours of Christ's life in in teachings or movies. As if somehow for a brief moment the powers of darkness were winning when Christ was hammered upon that cross. Beloved, that is charismatic Hollywood. That is not scripture. As we reminded ourselves before, Christ was not swept away by the wrath of a blind mob. He was bruised and crushed by the Father. This is God's rodeo, not Satan's. Who's striking the shepherd and scattering the sheep? It's not some devious satanic force. It is the very sword of God himself. So what glory in Jesus? What glory is in just Jesus' first sentence? And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written. I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. Wow. Yes, the disciples are weak. But how their weakness is equipped by glory, is it not? If we just look at the weakness of the patient here, we will miss the heart of the Savior. And that's why we're here. That's why we're here. To behold the Savior, to love Him more, to stand in awe of His Word and all that is contained within. So thus far, we have the omniscience of God. We have the authority and the continuity of Scripture. We have the planning and the sovereignty of God, all contained in Jesus' very first sentence. If you're weak this morning, look closer. Look closer. God is at work, all the way down to the unseen. Jesus goes on, verse 28, verse 28. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. That is beautiful. (laughs) Right in the midst of your falling away, of your fear and your panic, there's going to be resurrection and redemption. There's going to be resurrection and restoration. There's going to be fellowship after the failure. 
But after I have been raised, again omniscience, again the divine declaration of resurrection power. Not if I'm raised, I might go ahead of you, I will be raised, and I will go ahead of you. In his omniscient declaration of divinity, he's both encouraging them this morning, and he's rebuking them in the same go. Hey, you are all going to fall away in fear. You're going to run and abandon me, but there will be redemption and restoration. Where you have been scattered, I'll gather you again to myself. It is the Lord who scatters, and it is the Lord who brings them back home. So we see see three glorious predictions for the disciples to grab hold of in Jesus' second declaration here. I'll rise from the dead, one. All of you are going to survive this ordeal, two. Why? Because we'll all gather once again at our home in Galilee 3. Do you know in the fog of battle, they won't remember a bit of that. (laughs) But they will. They will. Not only will they, but they will take this very truth and they'll turn the known world upside down. And that's going to take boldness, brashness, confidence. I know we've all met many people in our life who were perhaps bold and brash and confident, but not in God and in his abilities, but in their own. Their confidence and boldness or in their own skills and success that have a, a head-sure cockiness that's, that's bred from a heart of pride, not from a settled assurance of the Holy Spirit that he will perform his word. And these are lessons that Peter and these incredible men will have to learn, lessons every one of us must learn. Back to our text, verse 29. Now won't be the first time Peter speaks from this kind of misplaced boldness, will it be? Look back with me to our text, verse 29, beloved. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Now that sounds quite noble, doesn't it? It sounds somewhat altruistic, laden with the the heart of a servant even. And that may be the cloak on the outside. But two things jump out to us. One, Peter just told Jesus, you're wrong. (laughs) Peter looked at God in human flesh and said, no. You will all fall away. No, I won't. Not only that, Peter, you just declared that you're better than the other ten. They might all abandon you, but not me. But not me. And Luke adds Peter's declaration of allegiance here. He writes, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. I am your champion. Sincerity is not the issue here. Does Peter believe what he's saying? No doubt. But we can be sincerely wrong. Peter's downfall here is not his sincerity, but his pride. Peter has forgotten to evaluate his own weakness. Unchecked pride leads to delusions of grandeur and arrogant estimations of our own strength and our own abilities. We take great warning here, beloved. This arrogance is not the sole domain of the lost. Peter is born again at this point. That's caution for us saints. That's caution. Yet our Savior is so patient with Peter. Jesus responds to Peter in verse 30. Verse 30. And Jesus said to him, 
Truly I say to you that today, this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. Again, the beautiful omniscience of the Lord. Now here we're talking about the third watch of the night. That's, that's midnight to 3 a.m. on the Jewish clock. Okay, Midnight to 3 a.m. They called this the rooster crow. Meaning Jesus is making this prediction sometime around midnight. And he's saying before 3 a.m., you're going to deny me three times. And in truth, even within those three, there are multiple denials. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, truly, truly meaning amen. Meaning this proclamation can be trusted. Take it to the bank, Peter. The second person of the Trinity says this will occur. Well, Jesus had to make four such pronouncements just in the 14th chapter of Mark. Verse 9, Mary's anointing of Jesus. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Down to verse 18. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Verse 25 again, Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And finally, our fourth here in verse 30. Look at the magnitude of these declarations. We don't skip over the trulies. We don't skip them over. They are to set our mind upon an emphatic truth. This will happen. This is true. Truly, amen. There will be no guessing. There's no guessing game as the Garden of Gethsemane approaches. All is known. All is to plan. What a comfort that is to us this morning. Every Christian should see the word truly in red letters, and be filled with assurance and joy. There are trulies that talk about your future as well, that talk about salvation as well. Take the joy of the trulies in Scripture, even when they're hard. Like today, this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. And while they will all desert him, Only Peter is going to desert and deny him. Now here our English does us little favors. How many of us know that there are, well, there's degrees of denial, isn't there? There's a soft denial, maybe a shrug of the shoulders. I don't know. Jesus, never heard of him, right? In the Greek, that's arneomai. And then there's an emphatic denial. I tell you, I don't know the man. That's aparneomai. Guess which one Peter uses? Jesus says, I not only know when you will deny me, how many times you will deny me, I'm even telling you how strongly and with what enthusiasm you will deny me. Now we would like to think that we would have all caught a clue at this point. (laughs) And yet scripture demonstrates that we will be attacked, we will be sifted at precisely the point we think we're strong. Wearsby notes, quote, that Abraham's greatest strength was his faith. And yet his faith failed when he went down to Egypt and lied about Sarah. 
in Genesis 12. Moses' strength was his, weakness, was his meekness, Numbers 12, 3. Yet he lost his temper, and he spoke rashly with his lips and was not allowed to enter Canaan, Numbers 20. Peter was a brave man, but his courage failed him, and he denied the Lord three times. And thus Paul told the church at Corinth, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. How do we take heed? How do we take warning? How do we obey Paul's caution there? What could Peter have done? What two latent heart sins are manifested in Peter? Fear and pride. Now, don't those sound like complete opposites of each other? Fear and pride? When in fact, they are the closest bed buddies there are. Fear and pride go hand in hand. Now, that's just a little teaser for when we actually get to Peter's denials in verse 66. Tune in in a couple weeks. I know you hate when I do that. We will look at those hard issues to come forth. Pride and fear. We'll leave you on a cliffhanger there. Yet even now, we will witness Peter's response to Jesus' second prediction. Jesus' second, even, even more emphatic, more specific prediction. Look with me to verse 31. But Peter kept saying insistently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. Peter now denies his denial. He denies his denial. He doubles down. Why? Because Peter's heart has been squeezed by this prediction. And Scripture tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Like a tube of toothpaste, when our secret affections are invaded, when our idols are touched, when the heart is exposed, it comes squeezing that tube of toothpaste, and out it comes. Understand, saints, of first importance, that Jesus' prediction, him telling Peter this, did not make Peter prideful and defensive. That pride was already there. How many times do we hear in, in marital counseling, oh, he makes me so angry. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Your anger was already there. He didn't make you anything. He was the outside source that squeezed your heart and the anger came out. Jesus squeezed the heart and Peter's worst qualities came out. The old man reared up. How do we know that? How do we know? Well, if we look to Luke's account, Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What does he call Peter? Simon, his old name. Why? Because his old man was speaking. His old man was speaking. He was speaking in the flesh that Simon needs to go. Consider Peter, the rock, the one who boldly proclaimed in Caesarea Philippi, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Say, well, brother, that sounds very much like the same bold brashness we see here, right? I'll, I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll die for you. What's the difference? What's the difference? What was Jesus' response 
in Caesarea Philippi to Peter's bold declaration. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter had a heavenly confidence in what God had done and in who Jesus was. He could declare this with boldness because of the source. He had been given revelation that did not come from his fickle heart, but it came from God. But here, standing in the Kidron Valley at one o'clock in the morning, the source is not heavenly. It's not boldness that's based upon revelation. It's pride that's based on the old man. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Where's the beauty in that? What glory eclipses being sifted by Satan? In fact, this text shows that all 11 were riding Peter's coattails in this. They were all on the bandwagon to varying degrees. Where's the eclipse of their shame and denial and betrayal? Well, in the moment, they won't be able to see it. They won't be able to see it. But beloved, you and I, we get to read the book of Acts. We get to read the book of Acts. This epic failure by Peter, by the disciples, is not a terminal disease. They've not committed the unpardonable sin. It's not the sin unto death. They were weak. They are going to be afraid and they're going to act on that fear. They're all going to do something that will cause them to later hang their heads in shame. But that shame is eclipsed by glory. By glory. When we see the father strike the shepherd, when the sheep are scattered to the wind, is that it? Do they just fall away? Does Jesus lose a single one that's put into his hand by the father? None of those will be lost. I will see you through. If I've saved you, if I've justified you, I'm going to sanctify you. And I'm going to get you all the way home to glory. In other words, I'll see you in Galilee. I'll see you in Galilee. And you will meet me there. Not because of your strength, but because of mine. And not because of your perfection, but because of mine. It's all eclipsed by his glory. That's a lesson that Peter, all 11, will have to learn. We are shaped and molded so beautifully by our failures if Christ be the one wielding them for our good. Christ's glory eclipses our shame and our denials. If we will look beyond the weakness, the sick patient that's there in bed, look closer. Look closer. He's greater than our fears and our sin. A greater glory, a greater grace, a greater mercy has eclipsed their failures. It's eclipsed ours as well. He's risen from the dead. He's gone ahead of us. And he'll see us in Galilee. And so he will. Our sin is cast into the sea of forgetfulness to be remembered no more. That is the same grace. That is the same mercy on offer this morning to all that would come in repentance and faith. Peter is not known for his greatest failures. Peter's life, the lives of the eleven, have been eclipsed by glory. It was always so, if we have eyes to see it. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, as we allow your word to settle in our hearts this morning, Lord, we have all been tempted to look at the surface. We've all been tempted to look at the weakness that we would be defined by. But Lord, we thank you this morning as we have looked deeply into your word that your glory is the very thread and fabric and tapestry of our life and that it is what we look to and hope to and stand upon as our rock. Lord, as we close with our voices again this morning, Lord, I ask that you would be with each one here. Until we can meet again, we ask that you would keep us in the beloved. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.